0: This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast, and we're doing a continuation deep dive from an original podcast with Sean Hutchinson from SVA, Value Accelerator Methodology. And we're gonna go through the financial accelerator component.
1: Good enough. Sean, take your (laughs) way. Okay. So the financial accelerator in in our value accelerator, which consists of, as we talked about in the original podcast, Discovery plus seven 90-day sprints, we're talking about a two-year project, is number seven. Why do we put financial accelerator at the end of the process would be, that's a relevant question, right? But we have to know because we've gone through decision-making and culture and we've been through risk reduction and productivity and company of the future and sales and marketing at this point, what we're trying to figure out in the financial accelerator is how to fund it all, how to efficiently fund it all at the lowest cost of capital possible. So often the financial strategy in the organization is not aligned with what it is attempting to accomplish and it doesn't actually contribute ultimately to the operational metrics that matter. So you can have a really good foundation of strategy, a really good operational foundation, a really good productive efficient process, but if the financing strategy is not line up with it, you keep running into these sort of blockades that ultimately are not going to serve you. Financial acceleration is also, importantly, about creating shareholder value for the owners. So ultimately when we talk about value creation or value acceleration, what we're really doing is accelerating shareholder value. And we're creating transferability
0: options for the owner that they did not have before. So when you say transferability options, What that means is if we have a buyer out there and the business owner wants to sell. Absolutely. That would be an example of an outside
1: transfer. But also the business really has to be able to transfer also to the inside, if that's the way it's going to go. Employee ownership, management ownership, partnership transfer, family, right? So those are the four inside options. The outside options are sell to a third party, recapitalize the business, which brings in a partner that takes part of the ownership or... Liquidate, Mm -hmm. right? Orderly, we hope, but liquidation is a possibility. So, when I'm talking about transferable value, I am talking about being able to efficiently transfer the ownership of the business at the highest value possible, Mm -hmm. right? Most businesses, when we start working with them, are not transferable at all. So, if you put a value on the business, it's probably more of a fair market value or an IRS tax value than it is a market, Mm -hmm. a true market representation, right? So, Our position is, if nobody would buy your business, and particularly Mr. Owner or Mrs. Owner, if you would look at your business from the outside and say, I don't think I would buy that business, then it has zero value. Mm -hmm. Now, the IRS is happy to put a value on it, right? They're happy to do that, especially within your estate. They got their own valuation thing, and even if yours is not transferable, they're going to say that it has value, and they're going to tax you on it. So... We are always talking about transferability and value in our work because we think that that's the acid test: will it transfer from one party to the other efficiently at the highest value possible? Kind of Litman's test, right? So, financial acceleration is a big part of that. There are lots of aspects I think of financial acceleration that we could take into account, but really there are two that we want to look at in our financial accelerator that we think matter the most in this particular context. One is determining the true cost of capital for the organization. Cost of capital is critical. As you know, part of the reason that public companies can continue to grow and become more and more valuable as they go, part of the reason is because they have access to very low-cost capital, which puts a lot of juice in the equity because they get a lot of leverage on the equity, which means that people that are putting the equity in get a higher return. That's why the math works, right? So... Private businesses do not have access to low-cost capital. Many private businesses really aren't totally bankable. They might be able to get a line of credit. They might be able to get an equipment loan of some sort, like an asset-backed loan. But it's hard to get the amount of financing
0: that they need to really reach their goals. When you go through this process with a business owner and you've gone through all the steps and you've gone through the financial accelerator portion, Mm-hmm. When that owner talks to a lending institution, does that change the behavior of the lending institution? Absolutely. And there are a couple of pieces of that. One, we have a better story to tell. Mm -hmm. That's important. So
1: the relationship between the owner and their bank, honestly, has got to be healthy. And the trust in that relationship will be based partly on, in most cases, how trustworthy the owner is to some degree, whether they can financially guarantee the debt. But it's also about the story. Good bankers, and there aren't that many of them, unfortunately. You know, the old style of banking was to actually get to know your customer. The bank gave you time to do it. You had a smaller portfolio of customers. You really went out, you learned their story, and your goal as a banker was to help the owner get from where they were to where they wanted to be. And that was the role of the bank. Now, not so much. Commercial bankers are loaded up with 200 customers. They probably have time to check in for 10 minutes, you know, twice a year. And there's all kinds of other pressures on him to develop new business rather than deal with the existing customers. So the system has changed so much that the relationship between businesses and their bankers or owners and their banker has, I think, deteriorated, which is a problem. Because we always tell our clients that in order to lower the cost of capital, you actually have to get lower cost capital. And that means your banker is your best friend. Because the cost of equity is always higher, including, by the way, the money that the owner, because they don't want to use bank debt maybe, because they're resistant to it, and a lot of owners are, they don't want a whole lot of debt on their balance sheet. But then they turn around and kind of loan themselves their own money on an after-tax basis, in many cases, and then the expectation of the return has got to be you know, 12, 15%. When I ask owners what do they want to get back for their money, for their investment, because they're in private business and it is high risk in many cases, they'll tell me 15% seems like a good number. That would be kind of my minimum. Well, every time they put a dollar back into the company, the expectation is that dollar is going to produce 15% said or otherwise. Mm -hmm. Right? So then the business has to generate 15% return on that dollar. Plus it has to generate additional cash to grow. So, There really isn't any leverage in that financial strategy, except the owner takes more risk by putting their own dollar back in. It's been devalued by tax already, tax and inflation. So they're putting it back into the company. And in my view, they would be better off creating a financial environment that the bank can say, we can get behind that story and we're going to do it at three and a half percent. Now the company has significant liquidity. Yeah, the balance sheet's going to look different. Yeah, there's going to be a payment that's going to be made, right? Off the income statement. Yes, those things are going to be there. But from a capital structuring standpoint, from a financial management standpoint, the company that uses debt judiciously and at the right cost is long-term going to be a much better company. Most private businesses, I think, are under leveraged. I think they're just under leveraged. I don't see very many that are over leveraged. Honestly, I've seen a few in my career that just borrowed way too much money. And maybe the more serious cases were not just borrowed too much money, but borrowed it for the wrong reasons. Yeah. So now they're in kind of, you know, double trouble. But businesses who use debt for the right reasons, with the right goals in mind, and establish financial systems that can track the value of that investment over time, which we would call, in a very technical term, economic value analysis, which folks that are in our industry or in the financial industry are gonna understand right off. But you know, to put it in simple terms, what are the activities within your company that are creating economic value, and which ones don't? That's what it comes down to, and economic value is very simply, did it produce a return in excess of the cost of capital? Gotta make the spread. Gotta make the spread, exactly. So I think everybody kind of instinctively understands when you lay out that case, yeah, I need cheaper capital in my company. That begs a question, is the balance sheet structured in a way? both now and proactively into the future aligned with your strategy, if you say, hey, here we are in point A, and we're going to use capital to move to point B. And this is the strategy that we have, the financial strategy we have to fund that movement. Our balance sheet and our income statement look like this. And by the time we get to B, they're going to look like this. If they don't look like that, we might not be able to fund B to C. Right, But we know, we've projected that they should end up looking at B like this, and if they do, then we're going to be able to fund B to C, and at C, they're going to look like this, and that'll get us to D. Right. So again, much like we were talking about in the company of the future discussion, incremental financial management, that sequencing of we're going from A to B, we have to be able to fund it, it's not going to happen by accident, we need a clear strategy. And we need to do it at the lowest cost of capital possible. So that's step one. That takes looking at the balance sheet history, current balance sheet, future balance sheet. Let me just mention that we've worked with a lot of owners and their financial teams that honestly do not look at their balance sheets very much. It's interesting. They spend a lot of time on the income statement, and I can understand that. So profit and loss, man, they're really focused on that, and rightly so. But... The balance sheet and the cash flow statement, there is some attention in the cash flow statement, but cash flow analysis sometimes is a little more complex than owners would like. At the end of the day, it's how much did I pay out? How much did I bring in, right? We don't really need the the sort of gap cash flow statement doesn't always resonate, and I get that. The balance sheet, however, if someone asks me to look at the financial health of a business or to begin to estimate the value of a business or the value potential of a business, The first thing that I will ask for is the balance sheet, and I will not ask for the income statement yet. I can tell them right off the bat with a little digging whether the business is healthy enough to actually increase its value in the future just by looking at historical balance sheets. And the balance sheet tells a story about the business that I think is incredibly powerful. Unfortunately, I think it's an underutilized tool. A lot of times the financial staff who are, in many cases, really capable look at the balance sheet a lot but there are other people in the organization that need to see it and understand it. Mm -hmm. I would argue in financial acceleration for financial transparency. Now, that's a controversial subject, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. I think in general, transparency of any kind in a business actually helps increase its value because it is a community activity right? Everybody in the organization has got to be enrolled in the idea of creating more value. Wherever they fit in that process, and that sequence, they're getting involved in creating more value. Creating more value can be interpreted, I think, very narrowly as putting more money in the pocket of the owner. I actually don't think that's what it is. I think that value acceleration is about creating shareholder value, but it's also about creating whole company opportunity. We like
0: wealth. Wealth creates opportunity. Wealth in a business helps everybody Creates opportunity for advancement. Creates job security. Mm -hmm. Creates benefits. Creates. Absolutely.
1: Yes. If we have money, we can do more. Yes. Right? So we need to be attuned to the financial needs of the organization, aligned it with the strategy. And then I think there needs to be a certain level of financial transparency within the organization. Because I can tell you, I think organizations that are transparent outperform their peers who aren't. And that's because one, the owner and executive team have shown a lot of trust in people to, first of all, engage with the financials, learn to understand them, understand their contribution to them and why it's important. And also just think about how money works in an organization and how important it is, right? The next time you ask for 50,000 to go out and do that, or you know, whatever it is you want to do, buy a new piece of equipment, how does that contribute to the long-term economic viability and wealth of the company? If you're not involved in that conversation or invited that conversation, it's just not going to be on the table for you. Mm -hmm. So the trust factor is one thing. And then I think the knowledge factor and the ability to understand action and how it relates to money is a big advantage that ultimately, I think, converts into a financial advantage, right? Think about public companies. Private owners get really nervous about people actually knowing about their financials, right? You don't have to show everybody everything. We're not saying show every salary or something like. It doesn't matter. I think they need to know the basics underlying. But if you think about a public company, it's all there. Every employee working in a public company, everything, everything. They can go read the 10Q, read the K, you know, whatever they want is there. And yet the companies don't fall apart. They don't fall apart. I actually think that they're probably better off with that level of transparency because people have access to the information that they may need in order to do a better job, to understand where their place might be. So I advocate for financial transparency as well as operational transparency. The other part of our financial accelerator that I probably am the most proud of, I guess I would say, is what we call feed-starve analysis. I'm going to need to get a little bit visual here. I'll try to explain it in a way, and I know that we'll probably be able to throw a slide up at some point, right, so people can see it. Let me put it this way. If you think about your company as a set of tiles, each tile representing something that you do, something that you sell, a division, however you would divide your company up into discrete activities, places, things, right? So let's call those economic activities. Let's say that you put all of those up on the wall and they form a mosaic. Some of those tiles are going to be differently shaped and bigger, smaller, whatever it may be. So it's going to turn out like a mosaic to be just kind of a hodgepodge of stuff, all interrelated. If I go to an owner and I say, all right, I can tell you from experience that if you put 20 tiles up on the wall, five of them are going to be adding economic value and 15 are probably either going to be neutral or taking it away, right? Tell me which are the five that are adding, and unless they have really sophisticated financial analytics in some cases, and a deep understanding of money traces through an organization in particular ways according to what it does, they are not gonna be able to answer that question, and as a shareholder or a leader of an organization, that is a very uncomfortable place to be, because you don't know
0: what to feed, and you don't know what to start. You'd feel stupid about putting money in a division that doesn't do anything.
1: Yeah, you if would. If you
0: didn't know. If you didn't. That's right. If you knew about it and
1: consciously continued to fund it, that'd be malfeasance. And remember, when we yeah. talk about leadership, the essence of leadership is knowing what not to do mm-hmm. or deciding what not to do. So the same principle applies feed, starve. In one of our other sprints earlier, we introduced this in our rapid risk reduction and productivity sprints. It is a framework for deciding what to say no to and what to continue to support or even ramp up support for financially. So visually, this looks like a bar graph, okay? So up the left-hand side is return on equity. This is a shareholder measure, right? On the bottom side is the total capital base of the company representing all the things that it does. How much money does it actually need to fund its operations every second, right? What's tied up? So at some point on that bar chart is gonna be a dotted line that goes from left to right, and that is gonna represent the minimum return on equity that the owner expects to get for their dollar, right? So now imagine that the company does eight things, and so there are eight bars, right, on the bar chart. Let's start on the left with our highest value activity. The ones we like are tall and thin, why? Because tall means they've exceeded that dotted line, the return on equity. They're very efficient also because they're skinny. That means they're not using very much capital. When less capital is used, it's highly scalable activity. It doesn't require a whole lot of reinvestment, which means it's very efficient. And you can do more of those things with less capital, right? So if you want to expand that, you don't have to put millions and millions of dollars into it. You can just incrementally continue to drive that up. So tall and skinny is great. Out of eight, maybe you have two or three that are, you know, one that exceeds that. You're looking at the chart going, I want more of that, right? Mm -hmm. Number two, maybe still above the dotted line. Great. We like that. Number three, just exceeding or just not quite hitting the, what are we going to do about that, right? Are we going, if it's just below the dotted line, are we going to feed it or are we going to starve it? The challenge to the team would be, I think we're going to feed it, but you guys have to figure out how to make it get above that dotted line by a good ways. And now we're going to see and make it skinnier, make it more efficient and drive the return up. I love the fact that it just, it gets real at that point for me because you can't escape the financial results. Whatever they are, they are. They're either bad, good or otherwise, but now you're getting into interesting conversations that benefit the shareholder or shareholders, but also ultimately create wealth within the company. Now, let's talk about, the ones that are marginal, right? So let's say four, five, and six are below the dotted line, but in looking at those activities and analyzing them, you see some life in number six. Even though it's underperforming right now, because you've done the strategy work and because you've done the productivity work, you can look at that one and you can say, all right, it's aligned with what we believe is our long-term company of the future, right? And we believe, because we've, as we've talked about before, because we have agile strategy, we think we can take number six and turn it into a winner, and we can do it within a year. And here's our 90-day agile strategy plan, right? And we've identified success factors. We've identified risks, got our resources lined up. We can take that one and make it a winner. Five, marginal. Maybe it's not underperforming. We don't know how to cover the white space between the top of that bar and the dotted line. Quite frankly, it's probably going to take a lot of work. And I don't know that we can really ever push it to where we want to be. So now somebody's got to have a conversation about that. Are we going to starve it or feed it? In those discussions, it should be apparent that it needs to be starved. And what does that mean? Starved the organization? or organization. Starved or sold, which is a form of starving. Might as well yeah. make money off yeah. an underperforming activity. So there are implications to starving. Of course, people may lose their jobs. However, if the organization is attuned to talent and workforce management, you never want to lose talented people. Mm-hmm. You always want to have created a culture, an environment in which you could reposition them relatively easily. So what you want to do is shut down that activity and move the capital that it was consuming over into the higher return activities and move the people there, right? Because you're gonna need the people there, most likely. Or you say, we're gonna shut that down, but we've got a new idea, right? We're gonna go buy a company and then we're gonna take that company and we're gonna blow the lid off and we're gonna need some good people in order to do that. So what that's creating is a more efficient capital base. It's allowing you to invest your money where it's most effective for the shareholders. Now, if you got a really short, fat one, right? So these are interesting. Here's the story that I see a lot. The short, fat, sort of grotesque underperformers just seem to be a majority of the time the thing that the owner considers to be the heart and soul of the company. Sacred cow. The sacred cow, or it's the reason the company was started.
0: Yeah, it's what my daddy did. That's right. Yeah.
1: And it's just a -hmm. value sucker. Mm -hmm. It's killing value in the company because no matter how many high return activities you get, If you got this sucker over here, that's just sucking the life out of the company, but it's also creating negative conversations and negative culture because everybody knows it's a loser. Nobody wants to be associated with it. And the leadership perception in the organization is being negatively impacted because everybody's looking at that and looking at the owner or the CEO and saying, why are we still doing that? I don't understand why that's even a part of this conversation. And so leadership looks like they're failing the test of the essence is knowing what not to do. So feed starve is a pretty complex financial analytical process because most companies don't actually understand in the beginning what capital they are investing in each activity. Part of it is defining the economic activities. And there are lots of ways you can do it. Is it each product? Is it a division? Is it a market? Is it a set of customers? Whatever that might be. Look like trying to understand the the current situation is really about understanding where the company is moving in the future because it doesn't really matter how you analyze that as long as it's aligned with and applicable to where you're headed in the future. That's really what you want, right? Alignment between those two things. So, the power of the financial accelerator three things, right, that we've talked about. We've talked about financial transparency, which begs the question of financial education. I don't think you should ever give information to anybody who doesn't understand it or seek to understand it. So you need to work both of those things if transparency is going to work. Then we've got lowering the cost of capital, which is really about understanding balance sheet, income statement, cash flow together, but also aligning that restructuring of the balance sheet with incremental steps along the way towards your company in the future so that it supports the strategy. And then the third thing is stop funding the things that are ripping economic value away from the shareholders. One of the realizations that comes out of that exercise is that you can have a profitable division that is producing negative returns. Again, another example of counterintuitive financial or value management. So it helps if a division is or an activity is a profit-making activity. But if it's taking a lot of capital and barely producing profit or even a handsome profit, the relationship between the capital base and the profit is what either hits the dotted line or doesn't, right? So you gotta reduce the capital exposure. Now remember, I said it was return on equity. I didn't say it was return on investment, I said it was return on equity. That's that dotted line. So now we're talking about creating a capital base that is both equity and debt. If you've got a skinny, tall bar, right? Smaller amount of capital, bigger return. If you add debt to it, and
0: that's an equity Amount of capital. Well, if you have a skinny tall bar, the question you have to ask is, do I have all of that market? Absolutely. And if I have all of that market, then you either have to go outside your market. That's or right. You got to figure something else well, out.
1: Well, you you might be feeding something that's just not going to go any further. Yeah, it's right? done all so it you can have do. to think about you that. Got 100% so, of it, yeah. so you know we can just run that until it mm-hmm. you know we continue to maintain that. At,
0: it's creating economic value. We don't want to lose it necessarily, but we don't want to put more into it. If it's not I, I, I think about if 80% of the company is a fat wide column and 20% is a high performer, And you go do the math of 80% times what it, the poor performer's doing and 20% times and you go, it's overwhelming. There's almost nothing the 20% division can do. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And as you add debt to the
1: capital base, which expands the amount of capital that you have at a lower cost, that tall skinny one gets skinnier, yeah, right? Because you've added debt. Now you have less equity at risk and your return actually will increase. The return on equity will increase. In that particular case, financial acceleration is in part about reducing the financial exposure of the shareholders.
0: For a company owner that has an accountant or CPA firm that's doing their books, would it be reasonable to expect that the business owner could derive the information you're talking about from standard? Counting methods that they're doing today?
1: Only if they track, only if they break down their financials into the buckets that they're going to use in order to determine whether they need to feed it or starve it. So a, a typical financial statement will not tell you where economic value is being created in your organization. It's not designed to do that. It will tell you your assets, liabilities, and equity in the organization. It'll tell you whether you're making money or losing money, but it will not tell you whether those activities that create those two financial statements are actually creating shareholder value. They may be creating shareholder equity,
0: but that doesn't break it down into its component parts. So for the business owner that's listening, and he wants to direct his accounting or CPA firm to start creating the data, what would they instruct them to do? Well, I think the first thing they have to do is have a conversation about what is it that they're trying to analyze,
1: right? So break that down into component parts. You could, in one way or another, you could say, well, I don't really want to narrow it down quite so much. So I'm going to do one set on products. I'm going to do one set on markets. And I'm going to do one set on divisions, right, of the company. That's good. Let's see where we are. Now, I think what I would do is I'd go to my finance team and we'd sit down and talk about what it is that we're trying to accomplish. I don't think that you need to get the accountants involved because it's really not, they could be helpful because they could potentially take like a general ledger or something Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and say, okay, now we know what you want to do. We're going to go through and we're going to classify in a different way, each one of these expenses and, you know, eventually get to the point where we can get some information out of it. There's two other conversations, though, that need to happen. One is how much capital is actually tied up in the company? What kind of capital is it? Mm -hmm. And what is the owner's expectation for return on equity, which is an expression of how much risk they want to take, right? And as an owner gets older, as they enter their baby boomer years, it's perfectly natural for them to not want to take more personal financial risk. It's tough to grow a company without taking personal financial risk. I have a client who's gotten to the point where they do not have to personally guarantee any of their debt, which is great, but they're a decent sized private company. They're 225 million in revenue now. But I would argue that even though taking on debt exposes the owner through a personal financial guarantee to financial risk, if they have to make that financial guarantee, spending their own money with a higher expectation of return is just as risky, really, same at the thing. end of the day. It's same. the same thing. It's just more expensive money. Yeah. So the corollary would be, for me, let's say you've got an early stage business and you're trying to decide you know, whether to raise money from venture capitalists. Venture capital money is extraordinarily expensive, very high on the, you know, sort of rank of capital expense. And so you're talking about 40 to 60% money with disadvantageous terms. Yeah, you could do that. And you may need to do that. Owner's money is probably coming in at a stated value of 15%. But really, if they looked at the risk in their own company and where they could get investment returns elsewhere with much lower risk, it's probably higher. Really, at the end of the day, I think if you had an outside advisor who said, let's really get down into the risk profile of the business, what do you deserve for making that investment? Their money is pretty expensive. And I don't know that the business is necessarily built to meet that expectation. So they're exposing themselves to the lack of return, right? And they're tying up a lot of capital that could be used for other things. That's why I say to our clients that their banker is probably their best friend in a growth cycle. They may not want to take on a whole lot of debt late in their career, late in their ownership. You know, if they're 65 or 70 years old, they may not be time to refinance the company. However, being able to finance the company is going to be an absolute requirement for being able to transfer the equity to another partner. If you don't have a bankable business, doesn't matter whether you have debt in it on the day of transfer, if you don't have a bankable business, It's going to transfer to lower value every time. It's only worth what somebody will pay for it. Well, that's true. And and what somebody will finance it. But you can do things as an owner that will actually increase the amount of money that someone will pay for it. So we have to be careful not to get into the passive kind of the value of my business is what somebody else will pay for it. Okay. But you're actually in control as the owner of the things that you need to do to drive that price up. So some people take that statement to be kind of a, well, there's you know, nothing I can do. What the heck? There's nothing I can do. It's just going to be somebody else's number. The whole purpose of our value accelerator is to turn that argument on its head. There is thing. There is a course of action or actions. Many things, many things that you can do to make your company more valuable and to, you won't be able to totally dictate the value to the marketplace, but you can sure set yourself apart so that in a crowded market, you've got everything that a buyer would look at and say, this is a good bet. And as a result,
0: I don't really need to get 20% for my money. To get that company, I'll take 12. Well, and a lot of the things that we talk about, I honestly think that's part of the, that's missing in the inventory or vocabulary of a lot of business owners. They don't know what they can do and they don't know that there's stuff that they can do. Yeah, maybe that might be the case.
1: Or they're just so busy that they can't get to it. Yeah. Maybe, uh, you, you know, you, it's yeah. not, I talk to so many owners who are just Fascinated and excited to be able to have some say in their value destiny. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That it really is in their control to some degree. If you have a life event that forces you to transfer in a down cycle of the marketplace, that's unfortunate. But in a normal market, if there is such a thing, in a normal market, there really is a difference between a valuable company. And a not valuable company, and we can look at them and trace not valuable and valuable to certain aspects, components. We can we can move the needle, and there are building blocks that you need in order to do that. That's why we're in this business. I mean, when people ask me what the mission of our business is, I can say it in two words: abundant prosperity. Mm -hmm. That's what it's about. Not just for the owner, even though the owner has engaged us. I want to see prosperity through the entire organization because I think at the end of the day. If an organization can create that much prosperity consistently on a sustainable basis, it is by its very definition, a more valuable company.
0: Well, I think about the community contribution. Yeah, I mean, you know, employment and new jobs and opportunity and training and the Absolutely. whole gamut that comes from a good community of good business.
1: Yeah. And owners care deeply about their community. Absolutely. I mean, you know, they're totally tied in. I mean, they know that they play
0: a huge part in the vitality of the community. Well, and it's, you know, they didn't do it by themselves. They've got the employees in the community that came along yeah. with them and they contributed and got yeah. to give back. And, yeah. you know, and, and so, you know, I think about, you know, why this ended the financial side ended at the end of the acceleration process, but if you don't have the other parts in place, you really don't know what else you can do to get leverage. Yeah, And so you really have to have those other things in place.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: Well, excellent. We will move on to the next one. Okay. Thanks so much, Sean. Appreciate it. You bet.